0: Good morning. So we're continuing our journey in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter two today, verses five through nine. If you're not real familiar with the Bible, that's fine. We all start at some point, not knowing where all these funny sounding books are. Hebrews, so by all means, use your table of contents. If you don't have a Bible of your own, help yourself to one in the rack there. Today also happens to be Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which means that today uh, we remind ourselves that there is something incredibly valuable about people, about you and me, and uh, Sanctity is kind of a word we don't use in everyday uh, conversation, but that word means when we refer to the sanctity of human life, what we mean is that there is something about human life that is unique sanctity, uniqueness. Um, There's something about being human that sets us apart from every other creature on the planet. All human life is special. Every human life matters, and each human life should be granted dignity, and respect, and protection. Now, I know the world in which we live in; not everybody would agree with that statement, but that's—it's really not just my opinion. Uh, that is the clear teaching of Scripture, including the passage we're going to be looking at today in Hebrews 2. That's not the main point of the passage, but it is uh, definitely a valid application of these verses Um, the main point really of the whole book is the absolute superiority of jesus christ to anyone or anything else and uh, this book just gives us reason after reason for why the son of god jesus is worthy of your highest admiration, your your total confidence, and your deepest loyalty. Um, And the reason given in these particular verses why that's true, why Jesus is worthy of your admiration, loyalty, and confidence, uh, the reason here connects very directly to the sanctity of human life Uh, in a way that you really might not expect. So I'm looking forward to showing it to you. So in the last couple of messages, uh, and by the way, if you ever miss any and you want to catch them online, you can do that at philida.org, but the last couple of messages, we have seen that the writer of Hebrews has been uh, telling us that Jesus is far greater than angels And he's been doing that apparently because some people in the community were pushing the opposite idea that angels are somehow greater than Jesus. And uh, why they were doing that, we're not really sure, but uh, our author here is making it very clear that's not true. Angels are not greater than Jesus. He is actually far greater than they are. And uh, in the first part of the book, He's been telling us one reason why, and that's because, as he says in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And through him, God created the universe. So Jesus is much greater than angels or anybody else because he is The invisible God made visible. Um, He fully shares in the nature of God. He is creator. And everything else is creation, angels included. But now we come to these verses in chapter 2. And now we're given another reason why Jesus is far greater than angels. And um, this is the reason you might not expect At least I think maybe many people wouldn't expect it, including a lot of Christians. And it's this. In addition to being fully God, Jesus became fully human. And by virtue of being fully human, he has a higher status, a greater majesty than any angel. Now, let's read the passage, and I'll try to show you what I'm talking about. So, Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him... For a little while, lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is far greater than angels because Jesus fulfills and restores the majesty of being human. He's far greater than angels because he fulfills and restores the majesty of being human. That's the point of this passage. And that has some glorious implications for you and me. Um, So let me just walk you through it. I want to point out three truths that lead to this conclusion that Jesus fulfills and restores the majesty of being human and then I'll finish up with a couple of those glorious implications and how it connects to the sanctity of human life. So truth number one, God created us, God created humanity to rule his creation. God created humanity to rule his creation. And once again, here in chapter 2, The author is quoting from Old Testament Scripture to make his case. And the fact that he keeps doing this, if you go back to chapter 1, you see it again and again and again, quoting Old Testament Scripture, quoting Scripture, quoting Scripture. The fact that he keeps doing this, that tells us something really important about what he thinks Scripture is, and not just him, because... All the other writers of the New Testament do this. The, uh, the other apostles do this. Jesus himself does this. Uh, they all do it. They appeal to Scripture again and again to show us what to believe and how to live. They, they do it all the time. They regularly use scripture to settle disputes. You know, Jesus talked to the religious leaders and he would say something like, have you not read? And bam, scripture. Um, they use scripture to correct mistaken ideas about God and about what we need to know in order to live in right relationship with God. And you have to ask, why did they do this again and again? Well, it's, it's really very simple. They were convinced that Scripture comes from God, that God is its ultimate author. Um, therefore, if He's the ultimate author, it's true, it's reliable, and it's life giving if you will accept it. So that's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. I I feel like that's just so obvious, but it just needs to be pointed out. Because we need to see. Now you might decide, well, I don't know that scripture's really from God, that He's the ultimate author. Okay, well, I mean, that's your choice, but you need to see that that's what Jesus and the other writers of the New Testament believed. That Scripture is God speaking. And the way this quote from Psalm 8 is introduced, <laughs> it really inter- it it uh, emphasizes this divine origin of Scripture in, in in kind of a funny way. Really, the writer says in verse six, "It has been testified somewhere," and, and if you in the original, it's even it's even funnier. It's more vague. It, it literally says someone has said somewhere. (laughs) And you think, okay, is he saying he can't remember? You know, it's just like, you know, I I know, I know the Bible says this, but I'm just not sure where it is, because that might encourage some of you, you know, if you have trouble (laughs) with that. You know, remembering a verse. It's like, I, I know this is in the Bible, I just can't remember where. And you could tell yourself, well, hey, if the author of Hebrews couldn't remember chapter and verse, I'm in good company. This is great. <clears throat> Actually, I doubt it's that he can't remember. Pretty sure, based on his amazing uh, knowledge of Scripture, that he probably knows it's Psalm 8. I think what he's doing, though, is emphasizing that what he is quoting comes ultimately from God. And that who the human author that wrote it is and where exactly it is, those things are far less important than who's actually behind it. Okay? In other words, whatever the psalm writer is teaching, that's God teaching. So what does the writer of Psalm 8 say? It's... It's amazing, really. He says that man, meaning mankind, humanity, was given a majesty above all other created things. And that's true, even though you and I often feel very insignificant. And actually, if you go back and you read the psalm and, and the verses that come before the ones that are quoted here, uh, the psalmist is outside at night and he's, he's looking up at the night sky and he, he sees the moon and he sees all those stars and he sees the vastness. I mean, have you ever been out camping when it's dark and you can really see how big, I mean, just what we can see is immense and he sees all that and he looks at it and he just goes, God, who are we? Who, who are, what is humanity? What, what are puny little people that you should care about us? We're so small. We're so insignificant. You know, and so we feel that way, but even though we feel that way, even though sometimes we feel like, you know, dust in the wind, little specks, we are actually more significant than anything else in all creation. Why? Why? Because we alone are created in the image of God. That's the Bible answer to that question. God made us in his image and no one else to rule over his creation. Psalm 8 is is really a poetic restatement of the creation account in Genesis. So if you go back to Genesis 1.26, this is what it says. Then God said, let us make man, mankind, humanity, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over All the earth over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Look at the emphasis there. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Or in the words of Psalm 8, which are quoted in verse seven here. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And the writer of Hebrews adds, just in case we missed it, now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside of his control. This is the incredibly exalted mandate that God gave us. That we would be his image ruling over his creation to care for it, to cultivate it, to direct it, to use it, to enjoy it in a way that would benefit all creation and would glorify him as creator. In other words, to rule creation as he himself would. As his regents, that is, his royal representatives, ruling in his stead. And the point here in Hebrews is that God never gave that honor to angels. That honor belongs to humanity alone. Okay, but wait, because I'm guessing that at least somebody out there is thinking right about now, well, I don't know about this, I, I don't know that the idea of, rule, of mankind ruling over this creation, I'm not so sure that's good news, because when man rules, man ruins He destroys, he pollutes, he devastates. Oh, well, actually, the problem is much worse than that. It's not just that we don't rule creation wisely as God-honoring stewards. We actually don't rule creation at all. Second half of verse 8, at present, we do not see, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And that brings us to the second truth. Truth number two, yes, God, God created us to rule his creation, but we forfeited our rule by our rebellion. We forfeited that rule, that original design. We don't live in the perfect creation of Genesis 1 and 2. We live in the broken creation of Genesis 3 and following. When humanity rebelled against God, because you know we, we decided we wanted to make up our own minds about what's good and evil instead of you know having God tell us what's good and evil and provide for us what's good. No, 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 we're gonna figure it out for ourselves. Forget you, God. We've got a better idea. Ever since then, because we did that, God put a judicial curse on this world so that today, instead of us ruling over creation, creation rules over us. I just heard a horrible news story last week. Maybe you heard it, of a sneaker wave down at the Oregon coast. You know what that is? That's that's a wave that's much, much larger than all the other ones. Every, all the waves have been coming up to this. And suddenly, without warning, a big one comes in, much bigger, goes much further. Knocked over a father carrying his two children, and both of them, both of those children were swept away to their death. Did you see the word death in verse nine? That was not part of original creation. Death entered this world when our sin entered this world. So, you know, we can try to convince ourselves that we're in charge. We can try to convince ourselves because, you know, we know so much. We think we do. And we can do amazing things. We've got all this technology. We can launch weather satellites. We can build dams. We can uh, breed better crops, better livestock. Uh, We can administer antibiotics and all this stuff we can do. But then a tornado rips apart a town or a river breaches a levee overflows its banks, or an earthquake demolishes a city, or a disease becomes resistant to medication, and instead of serving us, creation is killing us. I want to read you a quote from John Piper on this very passage Hebrews 2, he says, Death is not subject to man, and therefore nothing is ultimately subject to us, because it is only a matter of time till it will all be taken away from us. And what we thought we had mastered will be ripped out of our hands. That's what the writer is painfully aware of at the end of verse 8. The psalm says that man has a great destiny as the ruler of this creation, but the reality is, we're not conquerors now, we are carcasses, all of us. And when you, when you let that truth just kind of settle on you, when you let that sink in, when you consider the awful, bitter reality of our fallenness, our deep fallenness and brokenness. I mean, think about it. Created to be glorious, reflecting our our maker's majesty, but now so deeply, deeply fallen and dying, when you begin to feel the weight of this disaster, then then you can begin to appreciate the reason given in verses 8 and 9 for why Jesus is so great. So, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to mankind, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We don't see psalm 8 fulfilled in us yet, but we do see psalm 8 fulfilled in Jesus. And that's truth number three. The Son of God became man to fulfill and restore the majesty of humanity. The Son of God became man to fulfill and restore the majesty of humanity of humanity so jesus became a man died as a man rose in victory over death as a man so that god's perfect design for mankind might be restored might be fulfilled now we're still subject we're still subject to the painful hardships of living in this sin-cursed creation. Creation still rules over us. Death still plagues us. But Jesus has passed through weakness and death and is now crowned with glory and honor. See, that's the very destiny we were created for. That's the very destiny God created us to experience, to be crowned with glory and honor. Jesus conquered death, and he, he inherited the right to rule over all creation as the ultimate Adam. And so in Christ, God's magnificent destiny for humanity is restored. what's that got to do with you? What's that got to do with me? How is that good news for us? Well, look at the last line again. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for you and me, everybody. He died the death we deserve so that we would never have to experience that death. He tasted it. That doesn't just mean he took a little sip. He experienced death in our place. Or in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man man has come also the resurrection of the dead. The reversal of death. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ, in in union with Christ, shall all be made alive. So you see what it's saying? If you're related to Adam, and you are, we all are, everyone related to Adam dies. And if you're related to Christ, through faith in him, everyone related to Christ will live. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is almost too good to be true. It really is. If you're connected to Jesus by faith, then you too are going to experience God's magnificent destiny for humanity. It's just amazing. Psalm 8 will become a reality for you. When you belong to Jesus, you not only share in his death, you share in his resurrection and ultimately you will share in his glorification. Jesus said this in Revelation 3:21. Look at it. The one who conquers. Okay, now you have to understand in the book of Revelation when it says the one who conquers, it's talking about somebody who has enduring faith in Jesus. Putting your faith in Jesus and enduring in faith in him doesn't mean you have to be a bodybuilder, doesn't mean you have to know how to use a sword. To be a conqueror. The one who conquers is the one who by faith in Jesus experiences his victory, his conquering. So the one who conquers, the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You've got to be so careful not to read over verses too quickly sometimes. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Sitting with Jesus on his thr- His throne? That's the highest throne there is. What does that mean? And how can we all possibly fit there? Okay, you've had your 30 seconds. Get off. I'm up. (laughs) Well, it's a symbol, okay? It's a symbol. What's it a symbol of? It's a symbol of sharing in his inheritance. Remember that inheritance he won by becoming man and tasting death for everyone, and now he reigns as the ultimate Adam? It's a symbol of sharing in his inheritance to reign with him Over God's creation. Psalm 8 will become a reality for you in union with Jesus. When? Well, did you see what it said in verse 5? In the world to come. The world to come. The resurrection. The restoration. When Jesus comes and makes all things new. That's when this comes to complete fulfillment. That's when Jesus fully restores the majesty of being human what we were meant to be until then we look forward with hope as jesus continues to expand his kingdom through his people proclaiming his good news proclaiming his victory that we might put our trust in him look at first peter 1 therefore prepare your minds for action he's talking to believers in jesus Prepare your minds for actions. Be self-controlled. That is, don't get all distracted with all the things you want to do. Be about doing what Jesus wants. And set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. Set your hope fully. See, it's so easy for us. We, we so typically put our hope in short-term hopes. You know, what, what's coming? Because we look forward to those things. But this is saying your ultimate hope beyond all other things you're looking forward to is Jesus being revealed when in this world to come the majesty of being human is fully restored. If you trust him, if you trust him, if you ask him to make his tasting of death apply for you, And you say, Lord, let your death be my death, then his resurrection becomes your resurrection, and one day you too will be crowned with glory and honor with him. I said there were some glorious implications in this passage. Well, that's one of them. (laughs) That's one of them. Um, Let me point out one more. Because there is majesty in being human, both by creation and by redemption, restoration that Christ has accomplished, if we belong to him, we not only have an amazing future, we have an amazing value right now, right now. This is where these verses connect to the sanctity of human life. How do you know how much a human life is worth? How, much, how do you know how much your life is worth? Especially in those moments, and we all have them, when you don't feel like you're worth very much. When you're feeling bad about yourself. What will keep you from concluding that you really aren't worth very much? Where do we look to find the true value of human life? Because, see, you can assess someone's value in very different ways. There's a lot of ways you can, you know, assess people's values. You, you, you can look at their economic value which is basically what our labor is worth based on our abilities. So, LeBron James has great economic value as a pro basketball player. I, on the other hand, have zero economic value as a pro basketball player because even though I'm tall, I'm terrible at basketball and I'm also too old for the NBA. (laughs) So the NBA looks at me, zero. Economic, oh, unless I buy a ticket and go to a game, then I guess I have some. So uh, if no one values your economic abilities, does that mean you're not worth very much? Well, you can value people in, in other ways, like by the relationships you have with them. We tend to value members of our own family more than we value complete strangers, typically. I mean, no offense, but I value my wife more than anybody else in this room, It's not because you're worthless. She's just worth more to me because of our relationship. Um, Most people will do things for family they probably wouldn't do for complete strangers. Then there's the value of personal preference. Let's face it. There are some people you just like more than other people. And they, they have a greater value to you. Okay. None. None of those ways of determining value, none of those even comes close to revealing your true value. None of those ways. Why not? Because those are all based on the fickle, ever-changing, self-centered, selfish opinions of other people. So even if no one else values you very highly for any reason, even if you don't value yourself very highly, that says nothing about your true value. Why? Because there is another valuer. There is another valuer who regards you as incredibly valuable. Valuable and his assessment is the only one that ultimately matters. When your creator looks at you, okay? When your creator looks at you, regardless of your size, your shape, your color, your nationality, your development, your attractiveness or lack thereof, your abilities, your disabilities, Whether you're old, young, strong, weak, when your creator looks at you, he sees his image. And that is what determines your truest value. And the value of every other person on this planet, born and unborn, So many people don't realize this. So many people think that their value depends on their their looks, their attractiveness, their sexiness, their strength, their ability to perform, to do all these things. That's not it. It's the image of God. And the fact that Jesus came to restore completely the image of God in those who trust him. See, because it's like, do we still have the image of God? Well, yeah, we do. Actually, it tells us that in Genesis 9. We still bear, it says in James also, we still bear the image of God, but it's marred. It's, it's broken. But Jesus came to restore that to its complete majesty. Jesus became a man, died as a man, rose from the dead as a man to fulfill and restore the dignity of the majesty of being human. So if you trust in him, see, he's going to be at work in your life every day as you trust him, restoring his image in you. You become his, you become his child. You also become his project as he works until more and more you are reflecting the image of the one who made you the image of the one who values you so greatly. And one day, he will crown you with glory and honor. That is amazing. Why don't we pray together? Father, um, Gosh, this is glorious truth. Lord, it is amazing. Um, Forgive us for how we look at one another and we fail to value each other the way you value us. Forgive us for the way we, we think thoughts about ourselves that do not reflect your thinking about us. Lord, we are far more fallen than we... Sometimes realize, but we are far more loved and valued than we we dare hope. And let that sink in. And Father, if there's any here in our midst who have yet to say yes to Jesus and His incredible redemption, the fact that He tasted death for us, so that we don't ever have to taste death in in, in its truest in ugliest form. Death, for those who know you, is just passing through a door into your presence. No separation. No condemnation. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to free us from that, that fear of death. Thank you that you came to restore the image of God in us. Lord, have your way and accomplish that. Help us think like you and see human life the way you see it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.